Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. The uh, title of the talk is Finding What You're Looking For. I want to start by sharing a story, one of my favorite stories. I haven't thought of it in, uh, in ages, but when, I, when it came to my mind uh, earlier this week, I said, oh, I love that story. And I had to dig to find the book, um, and I got it. Um, this is a book, it's a wonderful book, that this is the original version, which is called was called Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart, um, Parables of the Spiritual Path from Around the World, and it was edited by uh, Christina Feldman and Jack Cornfield. It, has, it came out uh, a few years uh, after this original, and it's available under the title of Soul Food, S-O-U-L, Soul Food. Uh, but this is my original copy from ages ago. And this is a timeless story. This story concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order, as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th centuries and the rise of secularism in the 19th, all its branch houses were lost, and it had become decimated to the extent that there were only five monks left in the decaying mother house. The abbot and four others, all over 70 in age. Clearly, it was a dying order. In the deep woods surrounding the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. Through their many years of prayer and contemplation, the old monks had become a bit psychic, so they could always sense when the rabbi was in his hermitage. The rabbi is in the woods. The rabbi is in the woods again, they would whisper to each other. As he agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot at one such time, to visit the hermitage and ask the wise rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer any advice that might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot at his hut. But when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he exclaimed. The spirit has gone out of the people It is the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. Then they read parts of the Old Testament and quietly spoke of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said but I still have failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me, no piece of advice you can give me that would help me save my dying order? No, I'm sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give, but the one thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot abbot answered. We just wept and read the Old Testament together. But the one thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic, was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, 
the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us? Could he possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Yes, if he meant anyone, he probably meant Father Abbot. He's been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. Certainly he couldn't have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, Elred, even though he is a thorn in people's sides, when you look back on it, Elred is virtually always right. Often very right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred. But surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, a real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet, supposing he did, suppose I'm the Messiah. Oh God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? As they contemplated this, in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one among them might be the Messiah. And on the off-off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery to picnic on its tiny lawn, to wander along some of its paths, even now and then to go into the dilapidated chapel to meditate. As they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it, Hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends to show them this special place. And their friends brought their friends. Then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. After a while, one asked if he could join them, then another, and another. So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order, and thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. I love that story. We find what we look for. If you are seeing somebody as your adversary, you will have a particular way of being that brings that 
energy right out, right back at you. If you look for somebody and see and treat them with kindness and respect, they relax around you. They feel at ease and enjoy your company. And you find that they are worthy of your kindness and respect. And you start to enjoy the field that you create together. We profoundly influence our field and, our, and are influenced by who we surround ourselves with. In neuroscience, um, this uh, idea of seeing what you're looking for, finding what you're looking for, is called a confirmation bias that our brains are wired up with. If we have a particular belief, if we have a particular view, if we look through a particular lens, our brains will confirm and look for and recognize what we hold to be true in our minds. And interestingly enough, will generally miss what's right in front of us. And so if you see others around as your adversary, you will notice all the little cues that confirm competition. Not to mention the fact that they might pick up that feeling from you and have that competitive feel somehow in the air. And you won't see all the goodness right in them. I'm just remembering now there's a, a, another story of um, uh, a very wise woman who stood at the gate of, of a city that, um, that many uh, travelers would pass through. And uh, each, each one would, would ask, well, what kind of people are here that live in this city, live in this town? And she says, well, what kind of people were in the last town that you came, you visited? And one would say, oh, they were mean and nasty and you couldn't trust them. And she would say, you'll probably find the people here very much like that. And somebody else would come through well, what kind of people live here in your town? Well, what kind were in the last that you visited? Oh, they were so warm. They were so kind. They were so generous. You'll probably find the people here very much like that too. This is how it works. Most of us don't have a clue how much we are creating our reality. Not all the time, obviously. Everybody has their own temperament and we can't be naive and think that we can change everybody with the magic wand. But everybody, most people, have a whole pastel, a whole palette, I should say, of of energies and temperaments and uh, different qualities of personality. And what comes through in that palette has a lot to do with what it interfaces with. Mm. So noticing this confirmation bias, as uh, I, I might have mentioned here in recent, uh, recent times, uh, a favorite line of mine from Albert Einstein he said, um, perhaps the most important question a human being can ask is, is the universe friendly or not? Because 
in the asking and in the understanding the response, you will be creating your whole reality. If you see the universe as an unfriendly place, dangerous place, that's what you'll notice. And obviously, if you see it as a friendlier place, again, the confirmation bias is at work. So this is why, for me, as I share my, um, uh, my approach to, to Dharma, particularly in the relational element, um, a main practice that I've had for many years is to look for what's good, to keep looking for the good inside and out. Many years ago, I was a school teacher, uh, mostly in New York, 10 years in, in uh, New York and a couple out here in California. And I taught mostly uh, fifth grade and sixth grade in uh, New York City. And at the beginning of every year, every September, I set out a, on a little challenge to myself, a little game I played to see if I could find and connect with the heart of every student in the class. Some, it was so easy, and actually most would be very easy uh, because uh, they had enough love for them to just share and delight if they were at all treated, uh, treated well and respectfully and playfully. But some didn't have that same um, upbringing and learned to get attention by being difficult. Those were the ones that were particularly my, my task. Can I find the key that would open the heart of that one or that one? And I'd say generally each class would have, oh, maybe um, three or four like that. And often it wouldn't be in the group setting, but just in the private moments when there was enough of a mm, authentic space for there to be just dropping the, the, the walls, the, the barriers a little bit, dropping the armoring. And in a moment of authenticity, a moment of tenderness, a moment where I would be vulnerable, um, often that would invite somebody else. And most, most every child through the year was just waiting to be seen, just waiting to be seen. And that was a, a, a big lesson for me, that it's there in just about everyone, unless you're quite wounded or damaged at an early age, we all want to feel safe. We all want to connect and feel love and be loved. So besides what we're looking for, on the communication end, I've also found the same is true how we hear somebody. A number of years ago, I was leading the um, community Dharma leader program that, uh, uh, that we have at Spirit Rock where um, a number of people go through a two-year training to become leaders in their community. And uh, we had, as a guest speaker, a, um, uh, one of the, the main nonviolent communication trainers uh, in the Bay Area, this woman, Mickey Cashton, uh, who's a really excellent teacher. And she gave a talk that, that really stuck with me and with everybody uh, about wise speech and wise communication. And she said, beyond the, the basic principles of saying what's truthful, what's useful in a kind way, uh, with good timing, the, the general recommendations that are given by the Buddha for wise speech. She said, a whole other dimension of speech that's not 
spoken of very much is how you hear somebody. And it was a very similar principle to what I'm mentioning now about what we look for. She said, beyond the content, besides what somebody is saying, besides the the words that they're using, if you have a sensitivity to go underneath to hear what's really going on with this person, then you might get information that is tapping into a whole other level of understanding. Maybe you can sense their fear. Maybe you can hear their pain. Maybe you can feel their insecurity. Maybe you can feel their longing or their hope. Underneath the words, if you are really listening with the heart of a Buddha, you will get invaluable information that can put them at ease or make them feel understood, even as they say things that you might not particularly agree with. People need to feel safe and relax before they can fully show up. So this means that we can't be colored, we can't have our reality colored by the assumptions that we might be bringing to interactions. Oh, I know who they are. You know. Or I sense what they're, what they're trying to get at. Maybe. But if you go underneath, oh, what do they really want? <clears throat> to really notice them. So this practice, one way to do this practice is to listen and look with the eyes of a Buddha, with the eyes or ears of Kuan Yin, with the heart of Jesus or Mother Mary or a great wise rabbi or your kindly grandmother who loves everybody, whatever your figure is, or the Dalai Lama, whatever the figure is, to really move to another dimension of big-heartedness. I'm just remembering on one one loving-kindness, Brahma Vihara practice period I'd been doing, practicing for, uh, it was a six-week period of of metta and and the other Brahma Viharas. And when I got to the difficult person, if you haven't done this kind of practice before, you're programming yourself and just saying, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. Or phrases like that, and you're repeating over and over. And you do it first for yourself and then for a benefactor and then for a dear friend, and then for a neutral person, and then for a difficult person, and then opening to all beings. And each one, as you're developing that, uh, that metta, you move on to the next one when you feel that you have felt the, the juice and the genuine warm-hearted well-wishing for the category, and then you move on, working your way up to the difficult one. So when I got to the difficult one, I definitely knew who I'd be needing to work with. Somebody who was a Dharma practitioner and basically a decent person, but who just, in those days, just kind of triggered me in some way and activated a place of not open-heartedness, let's put it that way. And uh, I was working with this person and saying and trying to say the words and I could kind of feel not ill will towards them but to open up 
to metta was a whole other level. And uh, this one um, meditation, uh, in my mind, the Dalai Lama appeared. Right? And I, I imagined this scene, if you've ever been around the Dalai Lama and uh, at, at these big events, um, sometimes he does this where there can be a receiving line and people put what's called a kata, a scarf, they give to, the, to his holiness and he takes it and then he puts it over your, your head and blesses you. And then you move on. It's really cool. Right? And in this scene in my mind, the Dalai Lama was there on the receiving line and much to my surprise, my mind conjured up this difficult person that I was working with. Oh, oh, they're in line too. You know? And I just kind of played out the scene, played out the scene, and then they got in front of His Holiness. And I imagined, as, as the line was moving, I imagined what it would be like to be the Dalai Lama blessing everybody. And all of a sudden, this person comes in front of me, the Dalai Lama. And all of a sudden, I look at them and I say, quite spontaneously, Oh, you're a Buddha too. And we touched heads and put the kata over. And in that moment, it shifted. I remember that moment very well. It was just, I'd been seeing them through particular lens, but as soon as I imagined what a holy being would see, oh, you're a, those were the words that came to me, oh, you're a Buddha too. Ah, so nice to know you. And my relationship with that person shifted. And the subsequent years, they're, they're no longer uh, around now. They passed away uh, a few years ago. But the last years of our relationship were really um, a, a very good one, very respectful and caring and, and uh, appreciative with metta. In a moment, my reality shifted. Besides who we see, who we look for, we also can notice the very many ways we are and the very many different people we are around others. Have you noticed how many different selves come out of you depending upon who you're with? Different people bring out different parts of us. <clears throat> and that's one reason why the Buddha said, be very careful about the company you keep. Don't spend time or spend as little time as you can in the company of the foolish and spend as much time as you can in the company of the wise because they bring out all of those qualities, the wholesome qualities. And in the, the teaching on the seven factors of enlightenment, each factor, the one, co- the one common factor with each of those uh, qualities, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, concentration, equanimity, everyone has one common factor if you want to cultivate them. And that is being around others who have developed that quality. You want to learn equanimity? Be around people who are equanimous. You want to learn about joy? Be around people who ha- are, have developed or are developing joy, etc., etc. <clears throat> Mark Twain has a, a wonderful line. He says, Keep away from people who try to belittle your ambition. Small people 
always do that. But the really great people make you feel that you too can become great. I'll read it again. Keep away from people who try to belittle your ambition. Small people always do that. But the really great people make you feel that you too can become great. They can make you feel that you can become great. This is one of the beautiful um, uh, possibilities in our relationships, when we believe in people, we seem to give them that confidence at times, particularly if they respect us. Just by believing in them, there's something that gets transmitted. So, to not be stuck in your role, oh, I know who I am, I'm supposed to be so-and-so when I'm with this person, you know, that, that takes some real practice to get out of the role that you have put around yourself. And I remember uh, a very amazing uh, experience in my life when I, the first time I traveled on my own, I had, and, and visited a place that I didn't know a soul. It was when I was teaching in, uh, in school, uh, teaching uh, public school, every summer we'd get off the teacher's dream, right? It's one of the best things about teaching. And teachers really earn it, by the way. just want you to know. Any school teachers here? You and who? And used to be. Thank you. Thank you. So there I was, my first summer vacation on my own. I had taken some other vacations and traveled with friends, but I was going to take this big leap and go to Europe all by myself, not knowing a soul. A friend of mine had done it, and I marveled at him the year before. I said, wow, you're just going to land in London and not a clue what you're going to do? He said, yep. And I, was, I said, I don't know how you can do that. But it took me a year. I had a year to kind of prepare. And I said, I'm going to do that too. If you've ever traveled alone, you know what I'm talking about. All of a sudden, I could be anybody. I didn't have to be my parents' son, my sister's brother, my friend's friend, I could be anyone. And I found parts of myself, dimensions of myself that I didn't know were there. It was the best education I could have. And I subsequently did that every summer. I would, for the next five or six summers, I would go on my, until I found the Dharma. I'd then I was on retreat from each summer of that. But I, w- I would go and just have my new adventure. Oh, who am I going to be this time? It depended a lot on who I met. But I always found new parts of myself. So part of this is exciting to discover those parts of yourself and getting out of the, 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 the confines of the roles that you know who you're supposed to be. So I want to ask you to reflect for a moment, like you uh, to invite you to close your eyes and uh, reflect on uh, who you are around your coworkers if you work with others. Maybe different ones bring out different parts of you. Just get a sense, and there's no right or wrong in this, just get a sense of your way of being in that environment, or whatever your work environment is. Even if you're working on your own and you're self-employed, who are you in that mode? 
who are you around your parents? Or if your parents are no longer here, who were you around your parents? And maybe it was different, one or another, if you had both. You might even just feel viscerally or kinesthetically your whole body going through it a particular shift. If you have children, who are you around your children? Who are you around your friends? Start with your best friend. Who are you around your best friend? If you've done any traveling, who are you when you're traveling? Whether you're traveling alone or with somebody else, that other part of you that comes out. And now, Coming back to this finding what you look for, who do you see? For instance, we can go through the different meta categories. Who do you see around somebody who inspires you? Who do you see or what do you look for when you're around a friend? When you are around a neutral person, perhaps a neighbor or somebody who works in a store that you, that you frequent, Who do you see then? Do you see them? If you have somebody who's challenging for you in your life, whether it's a relative or a co-worker or somebody who you deal with, who do you see when you're around that difficult person? Or that person who's difficult for you? And if you tend to see with a particular filter, just imagine somebody who cares about that person deeply, who they see. Maybe who their dog sees when they're with that person or a a dear friend or a child. Who do they see? Do they see who you see? We see who we look for, and it takes an extra level of energy and practice to go just a little bit deeper. And in a moment, I will invite you to, uh, to explore with each other, but uh, before I do, I want to uh, finish with uh, reading this poem, and uh, the reason it it both pertains to this topic, but also I, I wanted I was reminded because I was with um, Julie Bedu, who I uh, 
mentioned a few weeks ago, this 96-year-old woman who um, has been a member of our community and who um, uh, has been uh, looking forward to company. And there she is, 96. And I've known her for a while and know who she who she is, who she was, and who she is now. And it reminded me of, um, and she's a beautiful, lovely woman, but it reminded me of this poem that I've had for years uh, that was um, found among the possessions of an old Irish lady who had died in a geriatric hospital. Uh, the poem so impressed the young nurse on the hospital staff that she sent a copy to the editor of the Beacon House News magazine in Northern Ireland Association for Mental Health. The old lady, Kate, her name was, was unable to speak, but was often seen writing. And this is her poem that she entitled, A Crabbit Old Woman. What do you see, nurses? What do you see? What are you thinking when you look at me? A crabbed old woman, not very wise, uncertain of habit with faraway eyes, who dribbles her food and makes no reply when you say in a loud voice, I do wish you'd try, who seems not to notice the things that you do and forever is losing a stocking or shoe, who unresisting or not lets you do as you will, with bathing and feeding the long day to fill. Is that what you're thinking? Is that what you see? Then open your eyes. You're not looking at me. I'll tell you who I am as I sit here so still, as I move at your bidding, as I eat at your will. I'm a small child of ten with a father and mother, brothers and sisters who love one another. A young girl at 16 with wings on her feet, dreaming that soon now a lover she'll meet. A bride soon at 20, my heart gives a leap, remembering the vows that I promised to keep. At 25 now, I have young of my own who need me to build a secure, happy home. A woman of 30, my young grow fast, bound to each other with ties that should last. At 40, my young now soon will be gone, but my man stays beside me to see I don't mourn. At 50, once more babies play around my knee. Again, we know children, my loved one and me. Dark days are upon me. My husband is dead. I look at the future. I shudder with dread. For my young are all busy, rearing young of their own, and I think of the years and the love I have known. I'm an old woman now, and nature is cruel. Tis her jest to make old age look like a fool. The body it crumbles, grace and vigor depart, and now there's a stone where I once had a heart. But inside this old carcass, a young girl still dwells. And now and again, my battered heart swells. I remember the joys, I remember the pain, and I'm loving and living life over again. I think of the years all too few gone so fast and accept the stark fact that nothing can last. So open your eyes, nurses, open and see. Not a crabbed old woman. Look closer. See me. So um, I uh, invite us just to um, share with each other for just uh, a few minutes and then we'll come back. You might turn to one or another uh, or two people near you and uh, share a little bit about who you see when you look at the various people in your life, how that works, or who you are among the different people in this context of finding what you're looking for, how could it be used in a skillful way so that uh, you see a bit deeper? And you might 
just even reflect on one or another relationship in your life where you might look a little bit deeper and maybe hold somebody in a different way. I know there's a, a lot of possibilities there, but just to, um, just to explore with each other for a few minutes how this whole um, truth of looking through the filter and missing the whole person uh, might be used as a as a a tool in your practice. So uh, we'll just spend oh another five or minutes or so, five or six minutes, and just turn to somebody, and then we can uh, come back. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, partner, if you like, and let's just, uh, what's that? Put the, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll give it to you. Um, So, a lot of conversation, probably some wisdom coming through there. Uh, Before we, we leave, we just have a couple of minutes left. Any either uh, insights, understanding, or uh, something that might have come up from that? Uh, anyone? Going once? Going twice? Yes. Um, the thing that we all shared, he- the thing we all shared here mostly is that no matter how much we practice and how much we try to come from that place of the open hearts Mm -hmm. and the attentiveness and the other person is another person and they have a soul and a heart like we do, there is always these moments of constriction uh, in whatever role we play with whomever. Mm -hmm. So that's what we discussed, all of us, in Mm -hmm. our different styles and ways. And it's a question of practice, really, to pay attention to it, to see how we come to it, what we receive, how we give it back, and so mm. on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And, and the first step is to just even know that there's that filter. It's not like you're going to get rid of the filter, and, and, you know, and you're just going to be a Buddha or Kuan Yin in, with everybody you meet. Uh, would that, that be so? But although it's something to aspire to, just imagine what the Buddha would be acting like in this situation. But to simply know that there's a filter, then you don't take your assessment to be the ultimate truth. Then there's a little bit more latitude in seeing even, well, this is what my mind does when I'm with this person, is different than this is who that person is. I know who they are. That is a huge shift right there. As the Buddha, as he said, you know, uh, don't, don't get attached to your opinions. You will have opinions. Just notice that there's an attachment to the opinions. And then you can be a little bit freer of that uh, misunderstanding that that's the truth. There's a line in the Third Zen Patriarch I love. He says, uh, do not search for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. That'll be big right there. Any other last comment before we go? Okay, so then uh, I, I invite you this week, just for the fun of it, you know, particularly if there's a, a relationship a, a connection that either you tend to place a filter over as you see that other person, or for whatever reason, you are not quite yourself around them. And that can often have to do with who they are, how they project, like that Mark Twain, hang around with people that make you feel really good about who you are. But to just see the 
reality that is, or the um, illusion of reality that is coloring our reality, it's a, it just opens up a whole, a whole other way of understanding. And then having that practice of being a Buddha or Kuan Yin or Mary or Jesus or whoever inspires you, wise rabbi, you know, wise uh, whoever, and uh, have fun with it, play with it, and then uh, let your light shine through. Okay, so we'll take a moment to get in touch with the heart and with sharing of merit. May I see clearly and see the goodness inside and around me. May I see through fears and patterns of constriction to open to well-wishing. May all see clearly, share their love well, and may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere and our merit shared for their benefit. May all beings know the highest happiness and peace. Thank you very much for your attention. <clears throat> Have a great few weeks and see you see in a few weeks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.